Take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Acts. I was asked before the service, you know, last week we were in chapter 20. Are we going to be chapter 21 this week? No, Acts chapter 9. We're going to go back in time a little bit uh, in our study, but I think and hope that we will be able to understand that as we move along. As we've gone through this study, looking at the various ways in which Christ is acclaimed through the sermons in the book of Acts, there are several different concepts that we have observed. We've seen Peter and Stephen. We've seen Paul developing the gospel to the Jews, recognizing who their audience is, and methodically demonstrating from the Old Testament scriptures how that Jesus the one that they had rejected and crucified, was in reality the promised Old Testament Messiah, both God and Lord. We have seen Peter and Paul developing the gospel presentations to the Gentiles, uh, with Peter and Cornelius developing Old Testament themes to those who were familiar with the scriptures, as Cornelius would have been uh, more than likely a proselyte or at least very familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And then as we've seen Paul with Gentiles who had no idea what the gospel was, who had no idea who God was, who Jesus was in Athens, developing the truth that mankind had been created to seek God. You know, being made in God's image, in his likeness, part of that is the desire to worship God. And we've seen how everyone is worshiping a God. And you look in the world around us and they are worshiping the little g gods of their own imaginations. And they need someone to give them more clearly from the scriptures who the big G God is recognizing that God is going to impartially hold mankind to the same standards of judgment, regardless of whether they have heard the gospel or not, regardless if they were like the Jews who received the witness from Peter, Paul, and Stephen, had that background in the Old Testament scriptures, or like those at Lystra in Athens who were completely lost in their idolatry. We've seen Peter and Stephen and Paul recognizing who their audience is. And they're tailoring the message that they're giving, the presentation, to them. They are not changing the gospel. The gospel stays the same. But the presentation of the gospel differs based on who the audience is, whether they be Jew, Samaritan, proselyte or heathen Gentile. This evening we're going to examine a key way that Paul uses to share the gospel with those around him. And that is very simple with his own testimony. As you study through the scriptures and looking through even what Paul developed for and Peter developed to give to the Jews or what Paul preached to the Gentiles, even in my own mind thinking, okay, would I be able to on the spot trace from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is Lord? That would be a challenge. That would be difficult. 
Would I be able to, with someone who has no understanding of the Old Testament, bring them to an understanding that there is a creator God? That is a difficult and sometimes even daunting task. But what we're going to see this evening with the Apostle Paul is that all of us have something that is a very important way that we can witness to others, and that is, how did we get saved? Because the gospel has to have done a work in our hearts in order for us to be saved, and that same power of the gospel can be given even by simply sharing our own salvation testimony with those around us. So if we look in Acts chapter 9, we're going to start this evening looking at the Apostle Paul's conversion. If I can flip there, there we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we see Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and it, he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, 
And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. As we look at, first of all this evening, Saul's conversion. Something that we know about Saul, just from our Sunday school materials growing up, Saul was involved in the persecution of those who follow Jesus. Okay, in fact, Saul was a vigorous persecutor. According to Saul's own testimony to the church at Philippi, he recognized, Paul recognized, that he wrecked havoc on the church. And the idea there, under the word havoc, is the same idea that we see with swine today. Okay, if you have pigs and you put them in a nice grassy yard, that yard doesn't stay grassy very long. Because the pigs like to eat the tender roots of the grass. And they'll use their snouts to dig that grass up to eat the roots. And basically they can take a well-manicured lawn and wreak havoc. And that's Paul's own testimony. That's what he was trying to do with the church. Completely destroy and eradicate it. We see in Saul's conversion the very first thing that his salvation is the result of Christ's initiative. Who was Saul? He was a persecutor of the church. Saul was the one who had overseen the death of Stephen. In Acts 7, verse 58, they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. In chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting unto his, Stephen's, death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea. And Saul, in this conversion, we see him, he is on his way to persecute more believers. Saul had his life planned out. He knew what he was going to do, and this meeting with Jesus was not on his agenda. His conversion was not just Jesus' initiative, but his conversion happened unexpectedly. You know, there was no psychological or emotional preparation for the surprising reversal that's going to happen in his life. Saul didn't have neighbors that were witnessing to him about Jesus on a daily basis. Saul's neighbors would not have wanted to witness to him even if they were believers because they knew what he had the power to do. There are times when, from a human perspective, we can see an individual is prepared for salvation. Someone who has observed their Christian friends. Someone who may be searching for answers to despair in their life. And sometimes God takes a while to prep somebody. But what we see in the life of Saul is that conversion can also happen in unexpected ways, even from the most ardent opponents of Christianity. I don't know if you have had the opportunity or have seen anywhere on the internet right now, but there is a current governor in the state of California who has posted billboards promoting abortion using the Bible verse that we are to love our neighbors. There is a pastor in his state who has published an open letter 
basically calling upon this governor to repent. Okay, that pastor's name is John MacArthur. We wouldn't agree 100% with where he's at. But he's publishing, and he sent this letter out calling on his governor to repent of his sins and turn to Jesus. I'm curious how many of us look at a governor or a political leader that we have and just say, well, they are an enemy of Christ. Write them off. When God can turn a Nebuchadnezzar around, God can turn a Saul around. Saul is an ardent enemy of Christianity. And yet his conversion is unexpected. It's something that he was not recognizing or was not expecting. We can take comfort knowing that the salvation of an individual does not depend on our efforts or our abilities, but rather on the work of God. In Romans 9.16, Paul writes, It is not of him that willeth, it's not the desiring of someone or of him that runneth, it's not the actions that someone is doing, but it is of God that showeth mercy. And Saul is on his way to persecute the church, to wreak havoc among the church. And in verses 3 through 9, we see Saul's encounter with the risen and the exalted Jesus. His conversion is not a result of a decision that he was coerced to make. His conversion is the result of his encounter with Jesus. Saul visibly sees and audibly hears Jesus in this encounter. Now, that's not something that we would expect to see today. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he was last of all seen of me also. Okay, we're not going to see with salvation today someone visibly seeing or audibly hearing Jesus. But at the same time, salvation doesn't happen without encountering Christ. The typical aspect is that conversion involves a conscious acceptance of the claims concerning the life and identity of Jesus as the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. Throughout the scriptures, we see conversion is never simply a regret for the past misdeeds. Conversion is never simply the learning of truths about God. Because you look at Saul. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament scriptures better than I would dare say any of us in this room. He knew about God. But it's not until he has this meeting with Jesus that he actually knows God. Conversion is never simply an emotional experience. But it's an encounter in, today in which we grasp the significance of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Saul's conversion takes place as he's on the road to Damascus. And while he's on the road, there is suddenly a light shining round about him from heaven. This light suddenly appeared without any warning. And what you would expect to happen if somebody is shocked, something happens without warning, is what happens. Paul falls to the ground. Several years ago, Growing up, we used to go to Brookfield Zoo on a regular basis. 
That was one of our traditions, Halloween, Thanksgiving, we would go to Brookfield Zoo. And I remember when they had a brand new exhibit open up, the Living Coast, bunch of penguins, fish, all sorts of cool things out that way. And the first time we went through this exhibit, you know, parents sometimes are a little bit slower because they actually want to read the stuff and pay attention to what's actually going on. But kids are just like, okay, fish, you know, oh, fish, oh, another animal. And so we were just running up ahead. And we got to one section and there's your glass in front of you and what looks like a cove and there's water in there and we're staring, trying to figure out, okay, what is here? And all of a sudden we hear this rumbling. We're like, what is that coming from? And you look up and in this section, there is a nice thick piece of plexiglass above your head that water comes crashing down on. And the first time that happened, we were not expecting it. And of course, we do what all children do. We run back to mom and dad and say, hey, come check this one out. And I will not, for his sake, mention which parent. But hey, check out that starfish. And the parent is staring intently, waiting for the starfish. And all of us kids are at the back wall snickering. Okay, here it comes. And soon you hear the rumble and the crash and you look up and this water looks like it's going to drench you. I have never seen that parent move that quickly. Something unexpected happens and Saul, as he's on his way to Damascus, something unexpected happens and he falls to the ground in fear. Suddenly this light is shining and this underscores the sovereignty of God in this event. And also the light shining, it links the appearance of the exalted Jesus with the theophanies that we see in the Old Testament. And Saul's response, his reaction as he falls to the ground, a typical response to fear. But this is also a typical response of those in the Old Testament era when they encountered the theophany, when they encountered Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. Joshua, before going to Jericho, he goes out and he sees someone dressed for battle and Joshua falls on his face before him. Moses, with the burning bush, falls on his face before them. And we hear this dialogue that takes place. Saul hears a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. We see God initiating again this conversation, addressing Saul by name. He knows who Saul is. And he asks Saul a simple question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? The fact that he is asking this question in the present tense indicates to us that Saul has not fallen on the ground in reverent willingness. He's fallen to the ground in fear. We see the Lord identifying with his own, identifying, stating that those who persecute the church are truly persecuting Jesus. This question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, is not an icebreaker to start conversation. Instead, it is an accusation throwing Saul's life purposes into question. Saul, what are you doing? What is the purpose of your life? 
And Saul asks a question that we would probably ask if we were in that same spot. Sometimes when we read what the narrator Luke writes, we're like, okay, Saul, that's a dumb question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response was, who are you, Lord? Well, you know who it is. It's the one that you're persecuting. Saul's explanation of his motivation for persecuting believers is going to depend on the identity of the asker. Okay? You know, sometimes when we get into trouble and somebody asks us what we're doing, we want to know, okay, who are you to be asking me what I'm doing? How much trouble am I going to be getting in depending on what your position is? The fact that he uses the term Lord is not a submission to Jesus as Savior, but it's simply a polite address when you encounter someone who's unknown. Similar to today, if you meet someone that you don't know and they ask you a question, you, address, you can address them politely with sir or ma'am. Although Saul does not recognize with whom he is speaking, as a devout Pharisee, he may have recognized the similarities with what is going on to that of the Old Testament philosophy, or theophany. And Jesus then identifies himself, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I am the one that you are persecuting, and you can possibly come to the idea, Saul is saying, Jesus, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting your followers. You know, sometimes we like to split hairs on things. You know, we're following the letter and not the spirit of the law. But again, Jesus is repeating his identification with his followers, intervening in the mission of the church for whom he died. And then he gives Saul directions. The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And this command underlines the authority of the risen Jesus. And Jesus expects immediate and complete obedience, which is exactly what we see Saul doing. Go to Damascus. Well, that's where Saul was planning on going anyway. But when he arrives there, he's arriving in a different manner in which he had anticipated. Those who traveled with him were speechless. The men which journeyed with him stood speechless. They heard a voice but they saw no man. This tells us that Saul's encounter with Jesus was not simply a psychological or a mysterious experience. It's not that Saul was out there somewhere and he got beamed up and his people with him were just looking around like, what's going on? They heard a voice. Well, at least they heard the sound of a voice. They saw the light. They didn't see Jesus inside as Saul had done. But this had an effect on his companions. The effect of this react, relation, or interaction with Saul was blindness. When he gets up from the earth, he opens his eyes expecting to be able to continue on his way, but instead he sees no man. His encounter left him unable to see despite the fact that his eyes were open. Perhaps pointing to the fact that sometimes when we think we can see, we are truly blind. 
Instead of entering Damascus proudly performing his own will, Saul has to be led humbly into the city where he sits for three days without food, without drink, fasting. Although he was seeking to persecute those of the way, he now cannot even find his own way. And we're introduced to the second main character in this scene, and that is Ananias. Ananias is a follower of Christ in Damascus. Ananias is commanded to go tell Saul about Jesus. He's commanded to go and lay his hands on Saul. And Ananias' response is about the same as our response would have been. Wait, you want me to go to that guy who wants to kill me? No, thank you. You know what he's trying to do. You know what he is here to do. And all Jesus does was repeat to him that, yes, I know what his plan was. But despite what he had planned, I have something different. He is a chosen vessel for me. Even though he was one who has been persecuting the church, he is going to understand how greatly suffering is. And not in a vindictive way. Oh, you made my people suffer. I'm going to make you suffer. No. But suffering as Saul, we know him better as Paul while he's giving the gospel, sharing with others who persecute him. The beatings that he would receive, the stoning that he would receive, the whipping that he would receive, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, Saul understood what suffering for Jesus was. We see the evidence of Saul's conversion. His conversion is evidenced by a change in his life. Saul goes from one who is an enemy of Jesus to one who is the servant of Jesus. Now, prior to our salvation, we are all the enemies of Jesus. Now, we may not all be seeking the active destruction of the church, but we are still his enemies nevertheless, as Paul tells us in Romans 5. God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Oftentimes, at least in my own life, and maybe you can agree, maybe not, maybe it's just me. But when I hear the salvation testimony of someone who has been saved at a later stage in life than I have. Several summers I worked at Camp Joy, and when you would have the speakers come in, usually they're giving their testimony within the first or second sermon that they're preaching. And you can sit there and be like, man, this guy was saved at the age of 63 out of a biker gang. Whoa, what a testimony. He was a druggie, he was an alcoholic, and God miraculously saved him out of that. Man, I wish I had a cool testimony like that. I won't ask for a raise of hands for anyone who may agree with that statement. 
But sometimes you think, you know what, I was saved at the age of six. The only biker gang I might have been a part of had training wheels. The worst we would have done was pour, drink milk out of the bottle. Mom, I did not do that growing up, I promise. I wasn't a dirty, rotten, wicked individual. Was I? Yeah. I was still his enemy. And after salvation, I go from being the enemy of God to being the servant of God. At conversion, all believers confess Jesus as Lord in surrendering to a life of service to him. The evidence of Saul's conversion is seen through the eyes of Ananias. He goes to Saul and he lays his hands on Saul. And he gives the message to Saul that Jesus had given to him. Now Luke doesn't record for us Jesus giving this message to Ananias, but it's still the message that Jesus gave. Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me. He may be using the term brother here, thinking that at this point Paul has, or Saul has been converted. It's possible. More than likely, this was just a simply a term that one Jew would have used to address another Jew. We, we don't know exactly. Exactly when does Saul come to know Jesus as his Savior? The Scripture doesn't tell us. Okay, it's, it doesn't tell us while he was on the way he accepts Jesus. But we know by the end of the story he's baptized and he's filled with the Spirit, so we know conversion happens. Ananias clarifies that Jesus is God with his usage of Lord, informing Saul that he is there on the authority of Jesus the Lord. Jesus hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight. Demonstrating Jesus' desire was for Saul's healing. Now, God is not a vindictive God. Jesus is not up there, oh man, just you wait till I get my hands on you. You persecuted me. You persecuted my church. I'll get you. No. Jesus doesn't desire bad things to happen to us. He's not vindictive. Jesus has sent Ananias to cure Saul of his blindness, but also to fill him with the Holy Spirit. And again, this is clear evidence of salvation. One commentator pointed out that while it is surprising that Luke reports the direct speech of Ananias, but not of Saul, demonstrates the focus of Ananias' message underscores Saul's passive reception of Jesus' revelation, healing, and the gift of the Spirit. Again, emphasizing salvation is all of God. It's nothing that we can do to earn. We see Saul is cured of his blindness. Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. He regains his eyesight, and just as Jesus had promised, Saul's blindness was reversed. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. He's healed. And so what does he do? Verse 18, part D, he arose and was baptized. Saul was immersed 
in this water according to the scriptures. Baptism is done only after the profession of faith. So we know that for sure by this point in the story, Saul has repented of his sins and turned to Jesus in faith. And Saul then receives meat. His fasting that he had been doing for three days is now broken. He eats. He regains his strength. And for certain days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And verse 20, what do we see him doing? Straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he, Jesus, is the Son of God. The disciples that Saul had been seeking out to imprison and to destroy are now the same disciples that he is finding respite with. The Jesus that Saul had denied and persecuted is the same Jesus that he is now proclaiming as Lord. And Saul is going through the synagogues demonstrating from the Old Testament how Jesus is Lord. Which leads us, that's all introduction, to the purpose this evening. Saul's use of his salvation, his conversion experience. If you take your scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, we see Saul, now Paul. He has come to Jerusalem. He's left the elders at the church at Ephesus in Miletus. He's now at Jerusalem. He's been captured, and now he is standing trial before the Jews in the temple. And when he's given the opportunity to speak, what does he tell them? You know, we think of Peter when he's speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem. When we think of Stephen speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, what, is, what do they do? They go through the Old Testament scriptures to proclaim that Jesus is the Lord. But what do we see Saul doing or Paul doing before the Jews? He's giving his conversion testimony. It came to pass, verse 6, as I made my journey and had come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, and I fell unto the ground. And I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And those who were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Before the Jews, he's giving his salvation testimony. You know who I was. Possibly looking out among the crowd and seeing some of those who would have condemned Stephen with him. You know before how I persecuted the church. 
You knew before how I wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. And yet there was a change in his life. And he points out that change, this experience that he has with Jesus. Now, some will argue that there is a discrepancy in the scripture here. Saul, according or Paul, according to his own testimony, says that those that were with him saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who spoke. But back in Acts chapter 9, Luke records that they heard the voice. So which is it? Ah, there's a problem. The scriptures can't be trusted. A more simple explanation. Can you sometimes hear the voice of someone without hearing them? Okay. If you have small children, you can easily understand that sometimes they can hear the voice without hearing the voice. Oh, mom and dad are saying something. I wonder what. Okay, so we don't have to worry about the fact that there's a discrepancy here. Saul's conversion experience, he was on his way to persecute the church, but instead he met with Jesus. And then after his conversion, he tells them in verses 12 and following of his commission. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, of good report among all the Jews who dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And that same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one, and shouldst hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins by calling on the name of the Lord. Okay? Paul isn't here declaring baptismal regeneration. Okay? He's not saying that you get saved by being baptized. But Ananias is encouraging him, listen, you're saved. Get baptized to demonstrate that you're saved. Publicly proclaim that you are a follower of Jesus. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age in which we don't understand the significance of that baptism. We live in a day and age where getting baptized is an okay thing. You know, we had one a few weeks back. It's a great thing. It's something that we celebrate. But Paul's audience, Paul himself, those who were baptized demonstrating their faith in Jesus Christ, it was signing their own death warrant. It was telling others, I am identifying with Christ, and their own family would disown them. I'll call her a friend. I don't know if she would say the same to me, but I'm sure she would. A friend of mine from a former ministry is a saved Hebrew. Her parents barely made it out of, I don't want to get the wrong country, 
so I won't say a country, barely made it out of Nazi-occupied territory in world, at the start of World War II. She came to know Jesus as her Savior. She was baptized. She gave her life to follow Jesus. Her family disowned her. And we're talking 21st century America. She is dead to her family. It wasn't until her mother was on her deathbed that her mother finally said, you know what, I want to make peace with my daughter. It's not a simple, oh, let's just get somebody dunked. It was identifying with Jesus. It was a death sentence. Either you would be physically persecuted and killed, or you would be mentally and emotionally removed from your family. Saul said, listen, I was on my way to do my own thing, to persecute the church, but instead I met the one whom I was persecuting, and there's now a change in my life. Instead of living for myself and trying to destroy him, I am now going to live for him and share him with others. Saul continues in Jerusalem, not of his own choice. He's kept in chains. And he has the opportunity again to give his defense of why he was being arrested as a rabble-rouser. In chapter 26, starting with verse 12, Paul is now before the Gentiles. Okay, before the Jews, hey, you know who I was, you know what I was doing. But Jesus, there's a change in my life. And now Paul is before the Gentiles, giving his testimony of, again, his conversion. Verse 12, Thereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Again, he's given the opportunity to share his testimony. Instead of as this king would have known some of the Jewish customs, instead of going through the Old Testament scriptures, he says, King, let me tell you a story about what happened oh so many years ago to me. I was on my way to destroy this church, to persecute Christians, but instead I had an encounter with Jesus. He tells his conversion as well, again, his commission. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, verse 16. And now we see Saul's commission, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Paul's testimony of salvation focuses on three truths. The first is that God is the fundamental reality of the gospel. God is the one who has the authority over life and death. God is the one with authority over history. And God has revealed himself and his will in the scriptures. Secondly, we see the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we've seen throughout our series, this is confirmed by his resurrection of the dead. He directs God's people from the reality to divine glory. Salvation is possible only through faith in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Those who do not have saving faith in Jesus live in darkness. They are unable to see the solution that God has for the problem of sin. Their blindness points to their life being under the control of the enemy of God. And the ability to see requires repentance. Turning from sin to God, it's submission to his will. So what do we take from this tonight? Are you saved? You know, several of you gave times of your salvation to the best of your recollection. Okay, as we get older, sometimes it's harder to remember the exact dates and times. But knowing the direct exact date and time isn't what's important. It's what Christ did for you. Are you saved? This week, meditate on God's saving work in your life this week. Just think about his conversion of you. You know, this morning as we celebrated the Lord's table, we're just reminded what Christ did for us on the cross. This week, I challenge you, meditate on that. What Christ has done for you. But I would also challenge you to seek for an opportunity to share your conversion, your testimony with someone around you. A neighbor, a loved one, some random stranger at the supermarket. You don't have to go through the Old Testament to prove Jesus is Lord. You don't have to demonstrate that they're a dirty, rotten sinner under God's judgment. Has Jesus done a work in your life? If you're saved, he has. Share it. If you're here and you're listening and you're not saved, Jesus has, there's never been that conversion in your life. Why not today? Turn from your sins, turn to him in repentance. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in our hearts and in our lives. The work that you did by sending your son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we could not pay for. Father, your word instructs us to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Father, I thank you for all those many years ago when you did the work in my heart and in my life to bring me to you. Lord, may we never forget the wonderful 
sometimes simple salvation that you have given to us. And God, I pray even this week that you would give us opportunities to share our salvation testimony with someone around us. Lord, if there's one here this evening who has never come to know you as Savior, they have not turned from their sin, may tonight be the night of their glorious conversion. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.